1: Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Happy holidays as the calendar year winds down and we're ready to ring in a new one. For those of you who celebrated Hanukkah or the winter solstice, we hope you had a great, fun, restful, meaningful time. You choose the adjective. We wanted to get you one final show for 2017. Although I'm conducting today's interview solo, I feel embraced, supported, and appreciated by my co-hosts, our wonderful guests, and of course you, the listener. In that spirit, I'll stick with the collective we. We'd like to send a Merry Christmas to all whom the wish applies, and happy, peaceful vibes to everyone else that remains. If you're in the giving mood, Lauren, Joshua, and I would greatly appreciate you leaving us a short but sweet Apple Podcast review of the show. Your generosity has the potential to allow others to find our podcast. This is Aaron Fishman, if you hadn't guessed. I'll be talking Indiana Pacers with Ian Levy, senior NBA editor and columnist for Fansided and editor-in-chief for The Step Back. Since coming over in the off-season trade that sent Paul George to OKC, Victor Oladipo has spearheaded an elite offensive attack. This completely revamped roster currently stands at 18-14, and 14, particularly excelling since a 6-8 start. In addition to knowing the Pacers inside and out, our guest, Ian, is notable for his baseball exploits at an arts high school in Rochester, New York. Some of our guests use the space to brag about their athletic abilities. In three varsity seasons, while Ian impressively started at least one game at each of the nine positions, he arguably even more impressively finished with six career hits out of a ton of at-bats he even went O for his junior year. Speaking of steely resilience, this Pacers squad has staged a number of thrilling comebacks in the early going. We'll discuss this bounce back ability, Depot's sudden emergence, the big man dynamic between Miles Turner and Donatus Sabonis, and plenty more, including how the Pacers can sneak into a top four seed in a crowded Eastern Conference. Ian Levy, do what you do. Thanks for joining me, Ian. I'm excited to have you on here to Talk Pacers. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited to be here. So far, they look really good. Of course, Victor Oladipo had gigantic shoes to fill coming over in that trade I just mentioned. Mr. Feathery, he likes to go by. He's been what the Pacers have been hoping for and a lot, lot more. 24.8 points per game, career highs in shooting, over 48 percent from the field and upwards of 43 percent from three and then some more advanced stats his usage rate is almost 31 percent that's in the league's top 10 around what we're seeing from LeBron and Kevin Durant yet his effective field goal percentage and true shooting percentages are still really high despite all these expectations and just the natural pressure that came with how he was acquired What makes him so incredibly effective this season in his first year in Indiana?
0: Um, Well, there's a few things. So, like, a bunch of stuff was written about, like, the shape he got himself into this year. There's, like, that famous picture. I can't remember even where it's from. But him uh, looking shirt off, looking buff on the left, and then shirt off on the right looking, like, ridiculously buff. Uh, You know, six-pack ripped, uh, all that stuff. And so he looks way more explosive, uh, certainly than last year with the Thunder, but you know even more so than I remember with the Magic, like early on in his career. And so he's getting a lot of things going for the Pacers, just with like energy, aggression, pushing the ball up the court, taking a defensive rebound, and attacking before the defense is set. Just sort of like speed and power going to the basket. He's getting a lot of uh, – I think he's getting a lot of mileage out of that. And then the thing that sort of makes me nervous is that his uh, – some of his shooting numbers are through the roof. He's been you know a good three-point shooter in the past, but he's looking like elite this year. Um, and the one number that makes me the most nervous is his pull-up three-point shooting percentage right now. He's taking a little over three a game, and he's hitting 42.4%, which is like, you know, in the top 10 in the league. His previous career high before that was 36.1% for a full season, and twice he's been under 30% for a full season on pull-up threes. So you talk about, like, his workouts and getting in good shape. You hope that some of the improvement is sort of, like, sustainable and organic. But I think he's probably shooting a little over his head uh, right now on pull-ups, and at some point I'd expect that that number to come down a little bit. And it's you know he's going to look like a slightly different player when he's not shooting quite quite that well on pull-ups.
1: That's really interesting what you've cited about pull-up jumpers. I was just reading that Darren Collison is witnessing a similar phenomenon where he's shooting much better from pull-up threes than he's been the rest of his career. And so there is a natural fear of those guys regressing to their mean a little bit. But just so impressive early Depot, just his fifth season in the league. And as you alluded to, he underwhelmed for the most part in um, Oklahoma City alongside Russell Westbrook. And he's just back in the state where he played college basketball He's just doing phenomenally, turning heads all around the league. If you had to say right now, though, where's the biggest room for growth in his game?
0: I mean, the way he's played right now, I'm not sure you could reasonably expect him to play any better than he has to start the year. I mean, this seems like such a a sort of like a crazy outlier uh, explosion. So, I mean, if he can sustain what he's doing, shooting the basketball, especially on those pull-ups, you know, that, that sort of locks him into this tier where he's... You know, I'd say a clear-cut all-star, maybe one of the best uh, shooting guards in the league. Um, so I, I think that's probably the hope for the Pacers. Rather than him, you know, somehow getting better than he is now. I mean, he's given them everything they could ask for, and that aggression and passion I feel like is such a different, uh, such a different sort of like aesthetic than the Pacers have had the past couple of years. Even when they were good back in like the the Hibbert David West. Uh, George Hill, Paul George, Lance Stevenson, back in those days, they weren't, I don't know, they they didn't have that that same sort of like kinetic uh, explosiveness. And that's just sort of been so fun to watch. It's just uh, the, the feeling around the team is just like totally different.
1: Just to clarify, there's not really any one glaring weakness that you can pinpoint for his game so far.
0: I don't think so. I mean, he's playing a gr- really aggressive defensively. He's making things happen at that end. I suppose if if this team sort of evolves to the point where they're a you know a, a contender or you know fighting to you know win multiple playoff series, you you might look at his defense and ask him to be a little more under control at times. You know, I, I suppose there's some times where maybe his his over aggressiveness can get used against him by elite teams. Mm-hmm. But he's making plays for others, he's scoring, he's shooting efficiently, he's playing within the offense for the most part, even though his usage rate is really high. It doesn't feel like he's sort of dominating the ball, taking terrible shots, um, you know, disrupting the rhythm for other guys. Everything he's giving the pacers so far this year, certainly unexpected, but uh, you know, I think you really chalk it all up as a positive.
1: Okay, so not perfect, but close. Yeah. I understand. I feel you. He must be just so exciting to watch on just a game-to-game basis. I've seen him every once in a while in national games. But the Pacers have the third toughest schedule so far, according to ESPN's RPI rankings. And they also totally revamped their roster. But yet they're 18 and 14, looking really good. And their elite offense has to be a huge part of that they're currently ranking sixth in offensive efficiency. Last season, they were just middle of the pack. They're scoring 108.4 points per 100 possessions. Besides Oladipo's brilliance, what's clicking so well for that offense?
0: They've got a lot more shooting on the floor than they have the past few years. Um, Sort of like all the way down the bench, the depth, Corey Joseph coming off the bench is hitting threes. Thad Young seems like he's settled into a better niche with this team than he did last year more space on the floor with the other shooters means there's more room for him to sort of cut and and move the ball in the middle of the floor miles turner's uh gotten better uh, a little bit better on the pick and roll a little bit better on the post up his efficiency is climbing early in the season sabonis and his ability to to move the ball uh especially out of the pick and roll catch the ball in the short roll and and hit an open man on the perimeter that was really helping uh the pacers offense and uh Bogdanovich and Collison have been both guys have been really good and I I think a lot of it is just sort of shooting it's been a while since the Pacers have been able to play lineups with four and five shooters on the floor and those groups there's more space for Turner to work in the middle of the floor there's more space for Collison and Oladipo to penetrate and get into the lane Um, and and, you know everybody is a pretty decent passer so they're able to sort of move the ball around and, and find the open guy.
1: They've been beating also all the teams that they're supposed to be beating, the league's worst teams, and it's been a little bit of a mixed bag against the Eastern elite. So they're 2-0 against the Cavaliers. One of those, of course, snapped Cleveland's 13-game winning streak. They're 1-1 against Toronto. They're 0-2 against the Celtics, but important caveats, the first game Old Depot did not play and the second game was that Monday night game where... They just had a really exciting comeback and fell short with that unfortunate ending, the Boyan Bogdanovich turnover leading to the Terry Rozier transition dunk. In your mind, what will it take for the Pacers to finish in the top four spot in the East? Or I guess phrased differently, what do you see as the biggest obstacle in their way, whether it's internal or just the overall landscape of the Eastern Conference?
0: I mean, it would be nice if their defense could get a little bit better. I'm not sure how likely that is given their, given their roster right now you know, Bogdanovich competes, but he has some limitations. Collison has some size limitations. Uh, you know, Sabonis works hard on the glass uh, and he's getting better with positioning and stuff like that, but he's not much of a rim protector. They they sort of have some of these defensive holes kind of like baked into the rotation, uh, but getting a little bit better defensively, you know, fighting off some regression and shooting percentages. And then I mean, it sort of remains to be seen what's going to happen with this team. Like when you looked at their offseason this summer after the Paul George trade, bringing in Collison and Bogdanovich, I thought they were still probably going to be a playoff team or at the very least sort of fighting for like a seventh, eighth seed. I thought they had had enough offensive firepower to, you know, finish a couple games over 500. But it was clear that they were kind of hedging their bets. Um, Bogdanovich and Collison, both on short contracts. I can't remember the specifics off the top of my head, but like, I think they're both two years, and at least one of them is non-guaranteed for next year. And same thing with Corey Joseph. He's going to be a free agent coming up. And so it it was clear that if if it looked like they weren't going to make the playoff, that they could kind of pack it in and move some of these guys and add some more assets and go to the next stage of their rebuild. And I think it still kind of remains to be seen as they get into the, the later part of the season. Is it worth it for them to... You know, if they drop slightly, is it worth it for them to go into the playoffs as a, a five or a six seed against an opponent that, that maybe they don't feel like they can beat in the first round? And so maybe they, they move a piece or two for a draft pick or, or you know, I don't know, somebody else with value. Um, I'm not exactly sure who it would be, but maybe somebody like Julius Randle, something like that, that's kind of floating around out there. What this team looks like at the end of the year, it's kind of like a, a chicken and the egg thing. The more they win, the more likely they are to sort of stay together. But, you know, if they fall off a bit, then the the roster, I think, could could certainly change around the trade deadline.
1: Yeah, the Pacers do have a lot of financial flexibility moving forward from what I can see. Bogdanovich is only guaranteed $1.5 million next season if his full contract isn't waived on or before June 29th. And I'm just seeing now that Darren Collison is only guaranteed $2 million of his salary next season. So that's helpful to know. Those guys have been pretty good so far. We'll talk more about them later. I want to talk more about how this Indiana Pacers team is winning games. So this is pretty corny, but stick with me here. Miles and miles of heart, that quote from the replacements, Gene Hackman's character, Coach Jimmy McGinty. I think it works, too, because they have Miles Turner on their team. They used to have CJ Miles. But so much adversity they faced game after game, and they keep coming back. I'll let you cite some of your favorite comeback wins of the season. I know I keep mentioning the negative one where they came back from that 15-point deficit against Boston and couldn't hang on. But they do it so often, and they do it so well. It's thrilling to watch. So just go through some of those if you can for me. But also, I want to know what, in your mind, those games tell you about this squad this season.
0: They have, I think they just have sort of like an energy and aggressiveness that's kind of been lacking the past couple years. Yeah, I don't know. Going down big, the fight doesn't leave. And then they are explosive offensively because they have all of this shooting, because they have uh, guys who can really get out in transition. It doesn't take much to, um, you know, to sort of spark a run. And and so the past couple of years, they haven't really had that same kind of like spurt ability you know, even at times when maybe they were playing better basketball than they are now, uh, it, w- it was not the the same kind of basketball. And so I think that ability to to sort of quickly turn things around and go on a run makes a big difference. And they just they look like they're having fun together. And that I, that's something that sort of like can't be overstated. I think we forget about that far too often that being on a basketball team is still a job like these guys have to spend all day you know, all day together practicing and, you know, on the planes and traveling together. And if you're on a team with a bunch of guys you don't really like, that you don't really like spending time with, you know, it shows, it rubs off on the court, it rubs off in how you play. I mean, think about all the times you've had a job, you know, where you didn't like one of your coworkers and, and you know, how that sort of changed your demeanor and energy on, on certain things, certain tasks and stuff like that. So I think that's the big difference with this team. That's why it feels like, you know, comebacks are possible. And that's why it feels like they can play up a level, you know, and there I I certainly don't think they're as good as Boston, Cleveland or Toronto. And uh, I I wouldn't expect them to be favored against any of those teams in a playoff series. But they can sort of rise up and, and play on that level with those teams on a specific night because they can sort of get that energy up when they need to.
1: The other aspect I was asking about, just some of the more exciting comebacks, I know against the Denver Nuggets, Oladipo dropped 47, huge comeback. They had one against the Bulls where they held them to 13 in that final fourth quarter, outscoring Chicago by 16 in the final period and ended up winning by two. Those are a couple of the ones that stand out to me. Were there any other ones when you think back on it?
0: The Nuggets game, uh, Oladipo uh, going Crazy. off in that game. Yeah, that was that was one to watch. That was one that I felt like as I was watching, as good as his numbers had been to that point. That was sort of the first game that I remember feeling like, oh, he's kind of on a different tier this year, or like he's he's capable of of being a, a guy that you know maybe I wasn't sure he could be. Watching him rise to the occasion in that game.
1: Yeah, that game just crazy. Oladipo scored thirty two points in the second half and overtime period combined. Just unbelievable. Yeah,
0: he, and he's aesthetically, he's so much fun to watch. Yeah, it, it's funny thinking about ha- him having played with Westbrook because I feel like this year he looks a lot more like Westbrook in that 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 kind of like twitch athleticism, just you know, sort of burst and explosiveness. But he's he's joyful in a way that Westbrook is definitely not. Yeah. You know, Westbrook is sort of like grim and angry, and and Oladipo just seems like yeah, just joyful.
1: But also taking it a different direction, I can kind of see a paradox of him kind of learning to play so explosive like Russell Westbrook, but given just how Russell Westbrook sometimes affects other stars' games. He couldn't do it alongside him, but that exposure to it just in all those practices and games kind of unleashed it the year after he left. Can you kind of see that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think you could probably say that it like in three different categories you could c- kind of see it like in his approach um that, that he's picked up some things and sort of how he plays, how he's going to be on the court, how he's going to sort of lead and control his team, things that we didn't really see from him when he was in Orlando and in maybe a more similar position to where he is with the Pacers, where he's kind of like the primary offensive creator. And then also maybe sort of physically. And then also I think you could probably chalk it up in the sort of like the psychological and emotional Uh, point of uh, I would guess that Oladipo maybe didn't have a lot of fun playing with the Thunder last year and so uh, kind of recognizing how important that is to make sure that that's a part of what the Pacers are doing this year you know having remembered you know when basketball was not fun um, you know trying to make sure that it is this year
1: right just briefly revisiting that trade that brought Oladipo to Indiana there were some great quotes recently Paul George had one on Depot's success, how that's helped provide closure in a sense for George and how the media should kind of leave both of them alone and just <laughs> focus on what they're doing individually with their new team. And Oladipo before that, he said, I- I'm quoting him here. I'm kind of getting sick and tired of the comparisons with Paul George and myself. He said that after that big win against Denver, he's moved on. I've moved on from the situation that I was in. I'm happy here. He's happy there. And the quote goes on, but he just seems like a guy who gets it and who's focused. And I know there was a lot of criticism after that trade that Indiana didn't get enough and that Oklahoma City ripped them off. I'm curious how your thoughts on the trade have evolved over time. Or if they've stayed the same, I don't know, maybe you had faith all along. <laughs> What's your thinking been like on that?
0: Um, I think I was much happier about the trade than a lot of other people. My recollection is... I definitely, in the lead up, I definitely got excited about the possibility of draft picks. I definitely got excited about the possibility of a trade with Boston and getting a young player and a pick. And I definitely spent a lot of time like looking at mock drafts and looking at scouting reports on guys that were in the draft this year and getting excited. It was a little disappointing when that didn't happen, when there was not a pick. Just because a pick kind of represents this sort of like intangible potential. And I think for people following the team, you just needed something to sort of feel optimistic about the way the last two years went and the way jo- George left, um, you know, the way that the trade demand kind of went down this summer. It was such a bummer, just something to feel good about. But I did really like uh, I remember hearing the trade news and being like, wow. That sucks they didn't get a pick, but I really like Oladipo. I really liked Sabonis. I thought he was miscast a little bit in Oklahoma City with them trying to make him into a stretchy big. And I thought he would be nice for the Pacers. And a lot of people were worried about Oladipo's contract, but I felt like he's going to be fun to watch. He's going to play hard. He's going to play defense. And they're probably not building a championship contender in the life of Oladipo's contract anyway. So I, I didn't think about it as being that restrictive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's certainly been fun to watch. That you know, from the Pacers side, it's kind of worked out to the best case scenario, you know, like where Oladipo has become, uh, you know, an all star and a fringe uh, MVP candidate to, to the degree that Paul George's ceiling was. Um, and Sabonis looks really solid and has been really helpful and, and looks like he could, you know, be a positive player in a really good team, too. You know, unfortunately for those guys, I think that comparison's never gonna really go away. Part of it is. Like their similarities, like they play a similar position, they play a similar style, even if aesthetically they're kind of different. George is more smooth and Oladipo's, you is know, a little more explosive. And then the fact that it's working for the Pacers and the Thunder are struggling, that just reinforces it. And then the fact that the Pacers haul was thought to be disappointing and has turned out to be like, you know, a, a pretty reasonable haul... All of those things are going to make that story stay. And, you know, it's it's going to stay all the way through Paul George making his decision this summer. It's going to come up every time those two teams play each other. And, and you know, I feel like it's it's sort of always going to be there to some degree.
1: And, of course, as you mentioned, Zanada Sabonis was the other acquisition in that trade. Miles Turner getting injured early on this season gave him an opportunity to start and really show what he could do. He, that was for seven games early in the season. So big opportunity for Sabonis, who made the most of it. Now, since Turner's been back, they've played 20 games together for an average of 6.3 minutes per game. So they don't play a lot together. I think it's been really good, from my understanding, just having that depth to where one of those two guys can be on the court basically for the full 48. Not a lot of teams have that. Their net rating while they're on the court together is pretty mediocre, but it's a very small sample size. I don't think we can really glean anything substantial from it, but I'm interested in their dynamic while they're on the court together. But more importantly, where you think these two young and talented big men fit into Indiana's long-term plans, do you think the franchise is big enough for the both of them? Sabonis is only 21 and really showing flashes. And I know that they really like a lot of the, the things that Turner provides too.
0: My guess is that they could coexist. I think their future is probably not playing next to each other. Like you said, that sample size. I had it at um I had it at 126 minutes so far this year. And yeah, they're like plus one per hundred possessions, but their offense is worse with, uh, with both of them on the floor than it is with either of those guys on the floor alone. And I think that's the case for their defense as well. And I, I think Sabonis is miscast as a four. Uh, I think he really is a center. The problem is he's not a great rim protector as a center. So when he's playing, when he's playing on the uh, center by himself, there's kind of a, a, a hole, uh, around the rim, uh, you know, although he's a great defensive rebounder and he's getting better at defending in space. I think that's an issue. And then it it sort of seems like it might be able to work together because Turner uh, can shoot, because Turner can sort of step out and stretch the floor. Um, But I think when those two guys are on the floor, they lose some of their – I feel like I'm saying the word explosiveness a lot. But I feel like it kind of slows Mm -hmm. the team down a little bit. It it feels more like – you know, kind of like a Utah Jazz, Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors kind of thing, where that works really if they're playing a slower style, if they're playing in the half court and they're trying to really sort of like pick teams apart with execution. And where the rest of the roster is going, I think, is more sort of like up court, up tempo. And so I'm not sure that the playing those guys together is, is a great idea. Six minutes a game, you know, it's it's not been a huge part of what they're doing, but I think they have – I think the Pacers have to at least try it and see if it can work because both of these guys are talented and ideally you'd love to be able to hold on to both of these guys for the future. My guess is the best case scenario is that Turner keeps improving, that he's sort of a a fringe all-star kind of guy and that he's your starter uh, and, and that Sabonis is a nice change of pace guy off the bench whether Sabonis is, is happy staying in that role remains to be seen. But Turner also has never been a big minutes guy. I mean, he's he's kind of been like right around 30 minutes or a little bit over for most of his career. So there's a there's a decent chunk of minutes there, much more than, you know, I don't know, somebody like DeMarcus yeah. Cousins, who's playing like 37, 38 minutes a game. Like there's there's sort of more of a role here in Indiana for a backup center than there is in some other teams.
1: I don't know if either of us has mentioned Thaddeus Young yet and He's really important to the team. He's enjoying a plus 10.9 net rating that's best on the team with Oladipo coming in second at plus 10.4. And then after those guys, it's a huge drop off in, in terms of that statistic. Fittingly, he's playing the second most minutes on the team. Thaddeus Young just seems to do everything. Describe his multifaceted impact for me if you can.
0: Yeah, he's a guy who does a little bit of everything. I don't think he's outstanding in any one area. Uh, but the fact that he can kind of slide around and do different kinds of things, it's a little bit of like the glue that kind of holds everything together. So um, on offense he's he's comfortable attacking some matchups kind of like in the in the post in the mid post or uh, you know attacking a closeout he's been a more willing three-point shooter this year uh, than he was earlier in his career the percentage is, is not great but at least the defense is sort of having to come out and guard that a little more than they have in the past the really smart cutter A pretty good passer for the position. He can move the ball in the offense and he, you know, really gets up the court in transition too. So he sort of fits with the tempo they want to play. Uh, and and then on defense, you know, he can slide down and, and defend some threes quick enough to handle bigger fours. So his defensive versatility, I think really sort of helps them, you know, cross match and make sure they're not getting exploited in, in different areas. Cause they really, the Pacers for the most part have been playing an eight man rotation, um, T.J. Leaf, their rookie, hasn't been playing a ton, and, and he's really sort of the only other four they've used. So, you know, when Young is not out there, you're often looking at those uh, Sabonis and Turner uh, lineups together, or you're looking at a, sort of a much smaller wing, maybe somebody like Bogdanovich playing the four. So, yeah, it, just sort of a little bit of everything, passing, cutting, uh, sort of keeping the ball moving on offense, pushing in transition, and then that defensive versatility and switchability really, really sort of holds everything together.
1: Speaking of that eight-man rotation, the roster turnover is pretty remarkable. Of those eight guys, I think only two were here last season, were there last season. I guess you could count Lance Stevenson, maybe. He was there for six (laughs) games. But uh, I think it was just Miles Turner and Thaddeus Young. Jeff Teague, Monte Ellis, CJ Miles are all gone. Rodney Stuckey, too. Paul George, of course. Al Jefferson was in the rotation last season. He's not anymore. Um, Glenn Robinson the 3rd hasn't returned to the lineup yet, and he was playing upwards of 20 minutes per game. Basically, what I'm getting at is the front office just overhauled the roster, and it's paid dividends. I'm curious to just get your opinion on how the front office was so effective in doing that, and also just from a head coaching standpoint, How Nate McMillan has made this work so seamlessly?
0: I think the front office, I think they look great because some of these moves paid off. Um, You know, if Oladipo wasn't playing quite so well, if Sabonis wasn't playing quite so well, the shine on that Paul George deal looks a little bit different. But I think they, I think they had a strategy going into the year and uh, or going into the off season, and the plan was we're gonna move George, we're gonna get the best deal we can get, and, and we're gonna identify uh, you know a few young core pieces, and then we want some veterans that we can put around them to play you know, as competitively as we can without sacrificing, you know, financial flexibility down the road, you know, they didn't want to completely bottom out like the 76ers. And I think the concern was, you know, what does that do to miles Turner to play on a 19 win team with, you know, no shooting around him or, you know, a bunch of sort of like raw ineffective defenders who are putting him in bad positions at the rim. And I think that was, that was smart. You know, it probably cost them in the draft market at the end of the year, the draft position at the end of the year. But better for the development of of Turner turns out that it's worked great for Oladipo, Um, and they're still in this position where if an opportunity comes up to to land somebody big or you know to land a, a meaningful draft pick. You know, everybody that they signed is useful to them and useful to other teams too. You know, Corey Joseph would be useful to any other, you know, top contender. And same with Bogdanovich and Colson. So there'll certainly be a market for those guys when it comes to the trade deadline. So I, I think it was a smart approach. You don't know exactly what the story was with the Celtics' offer for Paul George and whether there was, you know, something that initially looked better on the table. But, um, you know, I think they had a plan. I think they stuck to it. They've gotten lucky to some degree. But I I think it was sort of a smart approach. And as to Nate McMillan, uh, kudos to him because I think he's done a great job adapting, putting people in roles to succeed. You know, I was a little skeptical when they hired or when they promoted him to head coach. I thought it was another in a, in a series of decisions by the front office of saying one thing and then making a move that didn't necessarily fit. They said they wanted to play up-tempo. They said they wanted to play pace and space. And McMillan had a decent track record as a head coach, but his teams played really slow, really methodical, precise uh, half-court uh, you know execution. That was how they were so effective offensively. And so it seemed like they'd, you know, taken this coach and, and his approach was incongruous with what they said they wanted. Uh, and, and, you know, I felt the same kind of frustration with some of the roster moves, but he's adapted. He's got this team playing way different than they played uh, last year, way different than they played, you know, when he was coaching in, in Portland or Seattle. And so, yeah, I, I think it's it's really worked out well in every regard.
1: Yeah, they're they're 11th in pace now too. And um despite that, they commit the sixth fewest turnovers in terms of turnover percentage. So, they're playing fast, making smart decisions. And one thing about Nate McMillan, first of all, he's in his second season as head coach of the Pacers, and he hadn't been an NBA head coach since 2012 when he was fired by Portland. He's been decently successful over the course of his NBA head coaching career but not really in the playoffs. He only had that one season with the Supersonics where he advanced to the conference semifinals. But other than that, every year that his teams make the playoffs, they're out in the first round. You have to hope that this year is an exception for Indiana. But so far, so good for Nate McMillan. You really see the strides that they've taken, both from a personnel standpoint, and it seems like he's doing a good job as coach, Um, I just want to talk a little bit more about those new acquisitions. So Darren Collison's back with the team after more than five years away and just seems like a wiser, more mature player, better decision maker, shooting the lights out. Boyan Bogdanovich, his first year with the team, he's playing big minutes. I think earlier in his career with Brooklyn, also with Washington, there was a worry that Okay, he's a great shooter, but he's a liability defensively, so maybe we can't play him the minutes that he wants, but he's playing a lot bigger minutes this year as a starter, about 30 per game. And then Corey Joseph seems to be really solid off the bench, hitting from outside. Lance Stevenson back again. It just seems like they just have so much depth. Talk a little bit about that and how important that is, easing the burden a little bit off some of those starters I just mentioned.
0: Yeah, they've they've been great. I mean, um, I, I think they could still use a little more depth if Glenn Robinson, uh, you know, really can come back in the middle of January and and he can play well, hit threes, uh, give them some wing defense, maybe even slide up and and you know play some four and small ball lineups. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, Collison, I really liked Collison when he was in Indiana the first time. And I felt like both he and George Hill got a bad rap, you know, all all through that era of sort of the Pacers rising and then becoming, you know, a challenger to Miami with uh, Roy Hibbert and Paul George and and that group. It sort of started with Collison and then uh, George Hill was acquired. And both of those guys, I felt like the Pacers pushed Collison and George Hill to play as sort of like game managers as as a, you know, uh, sort of like your classic floor general kind of thing, bring the ball up and, and create for other people. And, and they asked both guys to sort of be a, a little slow and methodical with how they were doing things. And I, I thought it was, you know, it didn't play to the strengths of either guy. We saw George Hill in the in the year that Paul George was out you know, he averaged like 20 points a game and he was incredibly efficient. You know, he could have been a lead scorer. He could have been much more aggressive from that point guard position. And I think those teams, you know, that battled the heat would have been much better off if they had given him the freedom to sort of be a little more aggressive and to attack more. I think the same thing with Collison this year, he's You know he's free to play in a in a way that I don't think he was necessarily free to play in the first time he was in Indiana to be much more aggressive to attack much more to push the ball much more and I've always really liked Darren Collison's game I don't know it's funny you have these these moments with players that that just sort of like stick in your memory you get. You know, you see them play one time or you get sort of caught captured uh, watching a single game. And um, I remember watching Collison play at UCLA and really liked him. And then uh, as a rookie for the Hornets, he was Chris Paul's backup. And there was like a six-week stretch where Paul was injured that year. And Collison just went crazy. He averaged like 18 points a game, nine assists a game. He was shooting 40% on threes, 50% from the field. And Marcus Thornton was the other rookie, and he was doing the same thing. And those two guys were just like just recklessly pushing the ball up the court, so aggressive. And I don't know. I always sort of think back to that Collison from that six weeks, and I feel like if he was put in that kind of position, he could put up those kind of numbers again. And you know, obviously, there's issues with his defense and all sorts of other things. And those <laughs> Hornets teams with with the two of those guys going nuts weren't necessarily good. But <laughs> uh, so I always sort of think back to that stretch, and I think of that as sort of the ideal um, the ideal context for Collison to play. And it feels like this Pacers team is that like that's the kind of approach that they're going for. And it just seems like he's, yeah, he's free to sort of be the best version of himself in a way that he wasn't the first time around or wasn't in some of his other stops. So he's been great. Bogdanovich is really interesting too, because they're letting him, it often seems like he's matched up with the best perimeter scorer, like, or the best scoring wing on the other team, or at least with starting lineups. And I don't know if that's intentional. They're trying to get more size on people or, or, um, it's that strategy of like Depot's defense is good and you get more value and having him take out the second score completely, as opposed to, you know, maybe slowing down a, the elite first score. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Bogdanovich is not great defensively, but he works really hard. He's, you know, he's smart about where he's supposed to be in positioning, and he, he's certainly not killing people at that end. He, he reminds me a bit of, like, Kyle Korver a few years ago, um, where he had this terrible defensive reputation, but worked hard, knew where he was supposed to be, and, you know, made a, a, at least an average impact at that end.
1: Stay tuned. There's more with Ian Levy just a
0: This is Trevor Magnati and you're listening to
1: On the NBA Beat.
0: This is Sekou Smith of NBA TV, NBA.com,
1: and the Hangtime Podcast. You're doing the right thing if you're listening to On the NBA Beat. Just a quick question about Glenn Robinson III. So I know they're hoping that he comes back in January. Any idea around how many minutes he'd play and how that would affect the other guys in that eight-man rotation?
0: My guess is that he would like he wouldn't start. Um my guess is they would leave the starting unit intact. It's been pretty good uh so far. So he comes off the bench, he plays on the wing, you know, maybe a few less minutes for Stevenson or a few less minutes of uh of Stevenson sort of uh playing on the wing as opposed to you know being a backup point guard kind of role. Um, and I think Robinson maybe has the size to sort of let them play some, some small ball uh, lineups that they haven't really been able to. Because right now, you know, the three guys off the bench are Stevenson, Joseph, and Sabonis. So Sabonis is coming in. He's either uh, playing next to Turner and they're going big or he's replacing Turner, uh, you know, and then Joseph and Stevenson are next to each other in the backcourt. So I think Robinson kind of plays some of that 3-4, maybe takes a little bit of the load off that young.
1: I want to hear just your thoughts on Lance Stevenson, such a (laughs) lightning rod around the league. It seems like he's experienced really high highs and really low lows on and off the court. He's just, I don't even know how to explain him on the court, like a firebrand. Again, we're going to use the word explosive, but it seems like sometimes there's not a lot of thought into his actions on the court, but when it works out, it's just so exciting. I remember when he was on the Clippers. That was too brief for my liking, but <laughs> so fun to watch. Is Indiana basically like the only home for him? Everywhere else, it seems like he, he just doesn't last. It's hard to imagine him going anywhere else now. I don't know. I, I, I mean,
0: it, it it's hard to imagine anybody else really sort of giving him a, a shot. Um, I'm not sure that he would have gotten a shot anywhere else but Indiana this year, although I guess he was... He was okay for Minnesota in that brief stint at the end of last year before he hurt his ankle. He was sort of quietly solid in the way that he's been for the Pacers this year. Yeah, you're right. I think he's uh like a 100% instinctual. I think everything that he does on the basketball court is like straight from the gut, like – just emotion and instinct i don't think there's i don't think there's a lot of planning or forethought like he's just he's just going with it um doing whatever he thinks is right in the moment and he's been okay this year like that feels like something that's a- remarkable given where he's been like he was terrible his first couple of years with the Pacers and then he was really good to the point where I felt like they needed to give him much more of an offensive role I felt like sort of the end of that run with the Pacers core I felt like Stevenson needed a larger offensive role and I felt like they needed to dial things back for Paul George uh like that's how I was on on Lance yeah. and uh and then he was like terrible to the point of being unplayable at, you know, like four other stops around the league and, you know, maybe looked like he was done being an NBA player and he's been neither terrible nor terrific. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess you take that as a victory. I mean, he's definitely still like terrible to terrific moment to moment, you know, he'll make an incredible play and then he'll make a, you know, a horrible decision. Uh, But it's sort of been balancing out and it's been, constrained enough that i it doesn't seem like the team is swinging wildly with his wild swings. And so that's great. He's he's useful in this role if he can sort of stay right where he is, there's certainly a place for him and i don't know that the pacers kind of need that wild variability that, you know, he could bring, but um, you know, maybe that's a potential upside somewhere down the road.
1: Yeah, it's a little sad that he could never replicate that immense success from that 2013-14 season but i think i've come to terms with it that that's just not going to happen and just if he can just finish out a solid career that's a really good case scenario for him i think yeah just winding down though and i really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your pacers you clearly know so much about them and are so passionate about indiana
0: well, thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't call myself a fan anymore. Uh, uh, shed some of the emotional attachment, but they're definitely the team I watch the most. Definitely, uh, wish them well. Have a fondness for a lot of the individual players. And I'll say this, this team this year, I, I feel more emotionally invested in than a Pacers team in a long time. You know, uh, it's been a long time since the Pacers met a team that I think is fun to watch.
1: As a jaded, objective journalist, I think that speaks volumes, saying how how you're much more emotionally invested. But I did want to just ask you one final question before I let you go. Al Jefferson's been racking up these DNPs. I know his game is not really suited to modern NBA basketball, and he wasn't really that effective last year or when he's played this season. He's only guaranteed four million dollars for next season. Still, I know that's four million more than Indiana would want, but do you think there's any trade value at all for him at this point or, or what can they do really with his contract? If there's trade value, I don't think it's uh I don't think it's
0: him per se. It's his contract as filler in something else. Mm. It's hard to imagine a, a team sort of targeting him as somebody that they could use. I mean, I'm not with the team. I don't live in Indiana, so I'm not at the arena. I'm not around the team that much. He certainly is, seems like a guy who has like, kept a positive attitude, uh, understands uh, you know his own physical decline and limitations. And he certainly is a veteran who knows a lot and I think probably has a lot to impart to guys like Sabonis and Turner so I am I'm going with my gut here but I think there's probably value to him I think he might be more valuable to the Pacers than he would be to anybody else in the league at least for this season uh just sort of being there for the second year having a relationship with Turner knowing the coaching staff and sort of you know just helping some of the younger guys, uh, you know, figure out what they're doing and where they should be and, you know, how to take advantage of things. And if he's teaching Turner or Sabonis a post move or two, like (laughs) that's, that's worth a couple million.
1: (laughs) Great. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. It was fun.